Hi, this is Susie Mancini. I'm the production designer on Space Force on Netflix, and you're listening to the Go Creative Show. Hey, everyone. My name is Ben Consoli. I'm a director and owner of BC Media Productions, and this is the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. So today we're talking with Susie Mancini. She's a production designer, and her latest project is Space Force, the new Steve Carell show on Netflix, which is so, so good. If you guys haven't seen it, you absolutely have to. Uh, But this conversation is valuable regardless of whether you've seen it or not, because we talk a lot about what production design is, Uh, you know, how she collaborates with the cinematographers and the gaffers and all of that stuff. We also have have a discussion about how uh, building windows into your sets can be a problem for space. And uh, that was kind of interesting. Um, We talk about her love of North Korean architecture and how she incorporated it into the show and uh, her visit to SpaceX when she was researching for the show. So there's a lot packed into this episode and Susie is so great on the air. You guys are going to absolutely love her. Uh, This episode is sponsored by MZ, Education for Creatives and Post Lab stress-free collaboration for Final Cut Pro 10 and Premiere. Now, of course, I want to encourage you all to follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And um, of course, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. All right, let's jump right in to our interview with the production designer of Space Force, Susie Mancini. So I'm here with Susie Mancini. She is the production designer for Space Force on Netflix. Susie, welcome to Go Creative Show. Thank you for having me. What a fun show Space Force must have been to work on. Uh, Just the cast is amazing. The production design certainly is really interesting. I can't wait to talk to you more about it. But just what a great show to be on. It must have been a blast. Yes, it was. It was a surprise since the beginning. Um... We're talking about icons uh, of comedy, and I am a comedy fan. Majority of my work in the last 13 years have been in comedy. And uh, so even just my favorite uh, genre is comedy. I binge-watched tons of it. And I have been a fan of Greg Daniels' work for many years. I have seen everything he has done multiple times. And so for me, the chance to work with him and Steve Carell was really unique. And I couldn't, honestly, I couldn't believe it. I had imposter syndrome up until we wrapped pretty much. (laughs) Uh, And uh, so, but it was really fun. It was a lot of, um, uh, you know, again, idols to try to make as happy as possible. So you really want to give 110%. Uh, on top of obviously the working for Netflix on a big show. So, but when you work for people you really admire, I feel like it helps. So to give that extra, extra amount of yourself. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about production design for comedies. Um, because you said a, a majority of your career is in, in comedy work. And I know when we talk to cinematographers, there's, there's, a, there's a certain kind of look that comedies have, and it differentiates itself as a genre. Uh, and I'd love to, we, we've talked much about it about from the cinematography standpoint, but from a production design standpoint, how do you describe the look of a comedy? So comedy is uh, a big fan. It's of grades. So it's not just 
something, it's comedy. There is a lot of different types of comedy, as we know. And so the world in which the comedy lands needs to kind of meet uh, with the type of comedy you're doing. And uh, I have worked on different types of comedy. And I started from the very, very, very low bottom of the barrel type. So you don't really have much to play with. And up to a space force that becomes like a, also an eye candy and there are higher production value and they want also something that looks good and that it's cinematic. So in this range, you go from a stand-up to a big show. You still have to keep in mind that the most important part is the script, which yes, this notion can be applied to many other genres, not all of them, but for comedy the most because you don't really... Uh, it's all about the jokes and the delivery of the actors. So, so you want the audience uh, to be immersed as much as possible so that the joke can land as well as possible and the surroundings needs to apply to it and make possible and make sure that the jokes are going to land as best uh, as they can uh, and allow the actors to feel like um, there's nothing else that is going to distract the audience as much as the laugh that they want to get out mm. of it. Mm. So uh, you don't want to have like a prop that is uh, a gag if not required in the script. Like everything needs to be mellow and create the perfect uh, cocoon for the joke. Uh, in in this specific show and the one previous to this one that I worked on, which was Dollface, two different type of comedies, but both of them, they were very visually charged because they they wanted it. So Dollface, for example, has this like surreal element to it. So we wanted to create this hyper feminine LA environment with a um, cat lady that has the face of a cat. So there is this extra element of reality and they needed that in the sets. So I created something that is a bit hyper realistic. And the jokes are a bit hyper too. So it kind of matches. For this show, for Space Force, uh, it was the biggest challenge of all for me. Not again because of uh, gods of American comedy being part of the show, but because also you had to find this balance uh, in between uh, the comedy and uh, the environment in which this comedy is going to land, which is a military environment, part of this American government uh, in which the president is involved. And in which that is going to come out soon in the real world and is going to be talked about and is going to have an actual real location with an actual real uh, uh, image that uh, is going to be known by the entire world. And we're just a few steps ahead of them in terms of showing it to a large audience. So you don't want to create a sci-fi world. You don't want to create something absurd or comic, you want to create something realistic that is just cinematic enough to create a really cool, iconic environment, but that it's still going to land in reality and in which the comedy of somebody like Greg Daniels and Steve Carell can work well with. So there were like a lot of elements just on the creative side without going into the production side that we can start talking later eventually, but that we, we need time to just land on something that created this perfect combo of realism and cinematic uh, looks and combining them together, but always for the biggest purpose of let's make it fun. 
So the show Space Force is on Netflix. It stars Steve Carell, and it's basically like the the creation of the Space Force uh, branch of armed services, and takes place in Colorado, in kind of this desert, you know, campus that is created just for Space Force. But it has a really unusual kind of like brutalist look. And let's start at the way you began to develop the overall production design for the show. So you get the concept, you get the script, somebody tells you, you know, the director tells you what the show is about. When did it start? When did you start thinking about the brutalist architecture and taking that approach? This was even earlier. So the first time Greg and I met, uh, it was over coffee. And the last thing I thought is what that is, was that I was going to get the job. So I was like, let's just have breakfast. And because that's already the coolest thing ever. And whatever happens, happens. And we talked about everything else back to the show. And then at the end, uh, it kind of gave me just a glimpse of what the show would have been about. Like, you know, Steve is going to be the general of the new branch. Uh, we don't want to make fun of anyone, but it's a such that there's definitely satire in there. And I want something that is more cinematic than my previous job because I don't want it to look like The Office. And yeah. what I have back of my mind is some sort of Doctor Strange love inspiration. Oh yeah, and that was. And so I told him, give me a couple of days, and I was like, top of my head, I was like, I think it should be like maybe in the desert. And in my mind, uh, I imagine something about like an old Norad facility or an old like Soviet uh, built, built, uh, building abandoned in the desert somewhere or something that we can use to use some sort of brutal, brutalist architecture. Um, and he loved that. So I was like, okay, so show me some ideas. So that was a Friday. And on Monday, I sent him this presentation with like a bunch of research from ideas for the logos up until like the biggest, the bigger picture. And uh, I kept on going in that direction. And I tried to add some of Kubrick inspiration in there, not only from Strange Love, but also like a little bit of um, 2001 Space Odyssey. But again, like we did, I didn't want to copy too much. So I started also to introduce uh, the old James Bond's movies, like You Only Live Twice for Mark Nears, uh, which is my um, Steve Carell character. Uh, and so a combo of these uh, retro vibe in which architecture is really loud and as a presence. And it makes sense because you're in the desert and uh, the government maybe can't afford to start to build a new branch completely from scratch so they can use the already standing buildings. And the idea of using concrete in a desert environment is, um, it's, you know, it's sensical. So it's a material that works because it stays cold, cool in the inside and it matches also with the environment around you. And it has these very solid and geometric. And in my mind also it was like this, you know, because it's something that comes from the current administration. So I wanted to introduce this sense of masculinity and testosterone strength that was everywhere you could. And so I used these very strong materials. Um, and uh, also from the research of the military world, uh, it, it was something that could be applied very well. And then on top of it, I wanted to add the realism part. So we said, okay, so if we get like an architecturally strong box, 
what's going to be inside of it. And so I started to use uh, like very common uh, office decor, something that can be from an office depot, from, you know, Home Depot or anything that is not a fancy decor, but it is something that the government would buy and use to decorate their offices with, with just touches of design here and there. Uh, especially for Mark Mayer's office, the general, we went all in with the uh, slightly more mod- mid-century modern design. But it was always this combo of the decoration. It was a lot of military memorabilia. All of the history of the branch comes from the Air Force. So there are a lot of elements of the Air Force in it and the combination with NASA. So and everything that comes from these two worlds. So it's something that is you know, from the 50s up until nowadays. And the fact that in a box that is uh, brutalist, uh, there are a lot of uh, extremely new technologies, like the large screen in the launch room and all the monitors and the graphics that surround everything that, you know, the modern desk phones with the screen. And so the mix and match of modern technology with an older environment and a basic office decor is what we went for. Yeah. And I think you did a great job of that. Like you're watching it and you know, it's present day, but it doesn't, it's, it, it feels like it's been that, like the building's been there for many, many years and has been updated over the, you know, over the decades. And, um, it was just great. Like it's a great mix of modern and uh, mid-century modern, I guess, is the way to talk about it. So it was, it was kind of cool. And I thought it was an interesting choice not to go too futuristic because um, this really doesn't take place in the future, but it is, it, it's a, it's talking about something that's going to be happening in the future with this boots on the boots on the moon in 2024. So I just thought the approach was really, really cool. And, and it's interesting to hear the Dr. Strangelove comparison. It's a great reference. And I think that makes total sense but I want to talk to you about how are you researching these things? So you say, okay, I want to have a building that appears to be like a command central for uh, like a government command central building, but it also has to be reflective of space exploration. How do you go about the research for something like that? So there is a ton of uh, days and nights spent on the computer just of really uh, you're, you go into rabbit holes. You just let it go until you find an image that pops an idea into your brain. Uh, and then there is a lot of libraries that I've been working for from. And the ADG, the, uh, my, my union, they have uh, a great one and they have a great archive with tons of old photographs and books from the Air Force, the Marine Force, the Navy. So I've used the actual military uh, research, uh, uh, definitely in terms of structure and the way a base uh, is organized uh, and try to find something that was visually interesting and could have become like kind of iconic for the show and trying to merge the two. And uh, definitely there is a ton of location scouting. So, and here comes something, is always a team work. So I can have all the ideas in the world, but they have to apply to reality. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that is when everyone comes together and they try to make uh, your dream comes true. That are like drag dreams, the producer's dreams, my dreams. And uh, so for me, like the idea of brutalism was what the Greg and I landed on 
after we investigated the option of going modern and using glass and using crystals and very minimalistic environment, but it wouldn't really make sense because if you have such a modern building in a desert in a desert environment, you are gonna die of heat in it because it's gonna become so we really like the idea of using brutalism. So once we landed on that one, it was to find the perfect location. And uh, we didn't know whether it was going to be a location that would make sense for everyone, including production. And so we could have find it and shoot the interior and exteriors in it and just maybe redo parts of it, refurnish it, repaint it, whatever. Or if it was going to be a mix, maybe we do a bit of the interiors, we build some other interiors and we use the exteriors. And then we couldn't find anything of these sort, but we found... Uh, this campus of the University of Torrance in Los Angeles and uh, Dominguez Hills, uh, which was great. And I fell in love with this building. Then this is the location manager found it and he showed it to me. And to me, that was it. The first moment I saw it, it was mm. this monolithic, super brutalistic concrete uh, structure with different levels and facets. It was very interesting. And it's actually a theater. It was a university theater that was under construction inside. They were renovating. And um, in the middle of this campus, uh, which had these amazing buildings all around it, from mid-century to modern to minimalist, uh, it was this clash of the titans. And uh, so then we just fell in love with it and was like, why can't this be our base for every exterior. And then we have so many different buildings that we can create a geography with mm. and, and create our own interiors to them. So if we establish that that mid-century awesome building, which is actually a library of the university, if that becomes our interior science building, then we have to find like an interior that kind of matches or build it. But we know geography-wise that if our characters need to walk from the headquarters to the science quarters. We can establish these directions, we can establish these world uh, in between the two buildings, and then we create what we want for the interiors. So that is the way everything started to come together. And this building, uh, the theater that was our headquarters, was great because it doesn't have any windows which for me was the dream because uh, at that point we knew that we would have built everything on a soundstage. And so to find a soundstage big enough that you can create such a large environment, it's difficult already. Mm. But the other part is that as soon as you have a window that is low enough that you can see outside from, that eats up so much footage of your soundstage because you need to have a certain amount of feet where you're going to drop a backdrop, whether it's green screen, blue screen, or an actual backdrop, you need the X amount of feet. And then you need the space for lighting and they're going to lighting from the top, from the front and from the back. So you need, you're going to lose like from 15 to 20, 25 feet already for a window. Mm. And uh, so for us, uh, we couldn't do that. Like we need uh, every square inch we can get. So I really built from security line to security line of our sound stages. Uh, and uh, the fact that I didn't have to do the windows was great. So I needed the light. And so that is typical from brutalism. I used the skylights. 
So I was like, let's just use the light from the sky. We're going to design each environment has is very unique type of light from above. And we're going to just play into it. So we don't need the windows. And that turned out great. I'm actually really happy I worked. Every single area of the sets had a, a very specific type of ceiling lighting. The plaza at the center to me was my favorite because we built this uh, beehive uh, skylight. And uh, the lighting department and the GAF and the DP, they created this wonderful setup that recreated the, the sunlight. So it would move uh, according to which time of the day it was. Oh, wow. And, uh, and then it was a very, very strong uh, light because you had to mock the sunlight. And once uh, the light would go through the beehive concrete structure, it would heat the room underneath, which was the plaza, creating this crisscross uh, type of shadow, uh, which created so much texture everywhere. So all around that environment, which I left pretty bare, on purpose, you have these casted shadows at all time and even of the actors walking by it. So it created like extra texture. And that happens in every single environment that is not like a single small office. Um, yeah, I'm looking at a picture of that right now. And you're right. I mean, when you're when you're watching the show, it's interesting. The lack of windows wasn't something I noticed while I was watching it. But when you bring it up, I, I felt it like there's something about a room with no windows that has a very unique feel. It feels safe. It feels um, secret in a way. It could be underground. You don't know. And it also provides like this more congested space. Even if the space itself is big, it feels tighter. It feels smaller. And I think that helps to give it that sort of official feel and look to it. It, it really does have the appearance of something that is a special secret place. Mm -hmm. Now I'm glad you you like it. Uh, and yeah, so that's the way it all started. And then little by little, you know, and then obviously uh, we had our first director is Paul King. He's a great English director and very, very into production design. Mm. And uh, unfortunately he came on pretty late to do, uh, you're uh, on the on the game, let's say, because we had first of all a very tight schedule. So by the time I was hired, like we started shooting early September, and I I had access uh, or like mid September, and I had access to the sound stage on like August third. So I had like a little over a month to build the headquarters. Wow. Um, yeah. From so, scratch, uh, like empty yeah, studio to fully built in a month. Yeah. Wow. So lots of people. I had this great construction team. Like I, my construction coordinator is this great guy. He worked since the Goonies. It was like the construction wow. of the Goonies. So he had uh, big experience on his shoulders and uh, he knows everyone in Hollywood pretty much. So we took people from every show possible to make it happen in time. And uh, Paul was hired mid through this process. So by the time that Paul was on the show, we already started building some stuff, at least to like the basic structure and it was approved. And uh, But Paul really wanted to have his say because he was the pilot director. And again, like he also has honestly great taste and he had obviously his own vision. Yeah. 
And uh, so we had to change uh, a few things. And uh, to his credit, like I, uh, at first I was really scared because it was a change in the moment in which we didn't have the luxury of time for changes. But I'm very happy with that because his touches, uh, when I noticed them on screen, I'm happy we did them. We took the time to change a few things and listen to him. He he wanted warmth. So what- And you're you're talking about Paul King. Yeah, director Paul King. Can you, yeah. so what was one of the changes? So he comes in, you know, not at the end, but, you know, maybe midway through, a little bit further than midway through. He comes in directing the pilot and now has some new suggestions. Can you, t- can you give us an example of what maybe yeah. one of those things were? So he wanted warmth in an environment that uh, uh, up until that moment has been described always as like a military a uh, concrete world of grays and blues. He wanted reds and he wanted the warmth. Wow. And, um, which is, you know, it was hard at first. I was like, how am I going to make that happen? So I always had the wood paneling. And so my materials were concrete, number one, wood, number two, and iron and glass. Those were the four materials I've used uh, 90% of uh, throughout the headquarters. And um, I already had chosen a color for the stain of the wood. And then when it came in, it, saying they wanted something warmer. So I changed it because we didn't apply it yet. So I changed the tint of the wood and we landed on this one, which has this red to it. So it's a very warm type of wood, wood tint. And then he wanted touches of red. So we did the, like the helicopter landing with a large... H that is red. We did like these pops of red through the corridors with the fire extinguishers. And we added uh, more uh, livelihood, like you wanted more lived in environments, something that felt warmer. So also the lights became warmer. So we just added uh, this tone to the show, which we haven't thought about up until then. And you also have thought in the design of Mark's office. Uh, which that was also like a bigger change. You know, as I said, we were short on time and the numbers weren't really low. So we wanted to try to keep it tight. Did you change any of the lighting? Like, did you just bring in more tungsten lights or... or, No, uh, the gaffer and the DP, they landed on a warmer type of tone. Yeah. If I was uh, everywhere that is not concrete or wood paneling, I have uh, the regular walls. Sorry, sometimes my English flips away. But the regular wall color, um, I landed on a tone of uh, white, which had a lot of gray in it. And uh, instead, Paul wanted to land on something that has more beigey and pink in it. So it's all these subtle changes. But at the end, the result is definitely a warmer environment. I had it wood paneling more into the launch room as well, which was, he had less of those. And for Mark's office, he wanted something even bigger. And going back to the window, uh, that environment, even though I also would have loved to have a large window in his office uh, because of many elements that would have played against it. We had to land for no windows. And then Paul, when he came in, he really worked so that we could get a window in there because he thought it was going to make a big difference. And I'm so happy he convinced everyone to do it. And so that's why we have an office with a large window that overlooks the launch site uh, in his office. 
So there is a big collaboration, especially with the pilot, the director, and especially with someone like Paul, because not every director is that much involved in the local things. Like everyone cares, obviously, but there are certain directors that maybe are more prone to talk about uh, lenses or lighting or actor performances. And Paul uh, is very much into everything, obviously, but he also had a lot to say in terms of what the world looks like. And uh, I am glad uh, we did it because I'm very happy with the result. We've got a question from Twitter. Jaden Marvel wants to know, what was the biggest set constructed for the series? The headquarters. That's in everything that you see from the when they land the helicopter, we have the exterior shot of the, the, of the theater of the university campus. That's our exterior. And the moment that you see them walking up, it cuts to an interior. We built a section of the exterior. So when they walk and it looks like it's an exterior, it's already a set the piece. And then once they cross the, the, uh, the glass doors mm. and see the concrete world, that's, that's uh, all set, uh, including the launch room, the, the conference room, the plaza, the cafeteria, and the corridors, uh, his office, uh, everyone's office. It's all uh, built. So we built everything on two sound stages that were attached to each other. Um, and we created a second floor somewhere else and I had to build like a little extra section so they could have enough space to cut the, from set to set. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think every pretty much, I'm going to say 90% of the interiors of the show is built. Uh, whether it's a reconstructing on some sort of empty location or is built on a soundstage, uh, we, we built almost every single interior, even uh, like the gas station at the beginning of the show when, uh, wow. he's the guy that's a built, uh, the store that is Burberry where he buys the tie that was a built. I'm just thinking a top of my, we had so many, yeah. but it's, uh, so it's definitely heavy on construction. So I want to take a moment and talk about education, specifically education for creatives, which is who we all are here at Go Creative Show. Now, this is what MZ is all about. It's education for creatives over there at MZ.com. Now, you can buy individual courses if you choose, but they also have something called the MZ Pro membership, which gives you access to hundreds of hours of high quality filmmaking education uh, for topics that cover everything, directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, and more. And these courses are taught by really high-end educators. I'm talking about Shane Hurlbut, Vincent LaFerre, um, Philip Bloom, the ARRI Academy is on MZ. And they're always, uh, they're always releasing brand new courses. Like just in the past week or so, they've got two brand new courses. One is Color Correction and Da Vinci Resolve, and who doesn't want to know that? And then we also have a course by Shane Hurlbut called Deadfall Script to Screen, which is basically he recreates a bunch of the scenes from his film Deadfall that he shot, but he shows you how to do it on an indie budget, which is exactly what we need to know how to do. And it's all there and free for, pre for MZ Pro members. So here's the thing. You want to go to gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ. 
and check it out for yourself. See the kind of courses that are there. Um, you know, look at the educators, look at the topics. I guarantee you're going to absolutely fall in love with what MZ has to offer because it's perfect for us. It's for creatives, right? So check it out for yourself. Become an MZ Pro member so you really can benefit from all the courses that are on there right now. Check it out for yourself at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D. I want to talk about the the control room because yeah. your design team and you, you were getting guidance from Elon Musk's SpaceX. And I wanted to know what was that collaboration like and what did you learn from your experience with them? Yes, it was great. Uh, I couldn't talk with Elon, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> I wish I could have. Uh, but uh, we had the chance to go, thanks to Greg Daniels and Howard Fine and their connections, we had access to the inside of SpaceX and we could go and do a guided tour. So it was really fantastic. Honestly, I was completely ignorant about it. If not about the fact that they build something that goes to space and Tesla's, that's all I knew. Yeah. And then I walked in there and I found out so much about this company that I had zero clue about. And it's very interesting. First of all, obviously like for us, it was always a, something to look at with uh, these uh, knowledge that SpaceX is a privately owned company and Space Force, uh, it's a government branch. So to keep that in the back of your head at all time. But when it comes to... Well, how, how does that affect the design? Well, it, it affects it because uh, a privately owned company means that they have way more money and they can do pretty much whatever they want. Yep. I think it is a government branch. You have way more guidelines and way smaller of a budget. So you look at it and you just keep that in the back of your head. And But it was very interesting to learn uh, what they do, how they do it. And they the crazy part is that I had no idea. Uh, this space is this massive anger until your eyes can see. And every department works together. There's no real separation among departments. So when you walk in on your left, uh, you have this open area cafeteria with like a buffet and tables. Yeah. And on the right, you have this glass cube, which is the launch room. And uh, so every, and then you look in front of you and you have SpaceX. So you have from engineers, scientists, uh, uh, painters, so they all work in their sections in this wow. open air space next to each other. And everyone can watch the launches because it's, made of glass. So every single person that works there, when there is a launch, they just peek through the glass and look at the launch. And the launch room itself is such a simple room. There are like Ikea desks with one simple computer in it, very cheap looking chairs. And then there is this large white wall with projection. So it's not even a screen and they use projectors and they project wow. whatever it's happening. And, um, so that for us just opened up so many different ideas uh, and we picked uh, what we could use for us. So we like, Greg really liked the idea of being a space that everyone that worked there had access to, at least with their eyes. So I used uh, the concept of using glass walls a lot. So the room is not completely glass, but there is a lot of it's concrete and glass walls so that people could have the access to it. And uh, we couldn't use the projection because of lighting issues. It wouldn't have worked 
well, because obviously a set is not a real place. And so you have to have certain lights for the actors. And so it would have worked out well. So we needed to go for a screen and then we had to land for this amazing LED screen surrounded by other monitors. So this was a real screen, like there's no CGI there. That wall was massive and wow. it's completely covered by this LED last technology type of LED screen. <laughs> Uh, it was really impressive. And, um, but yeah, so we just learned the things. And so what I've, also what I've learned uh, and applied to the show was the interior of the rockets. So when they go to the moon, with, which just happened in the real world, uh, yeah. then the technologies of these rockets is completely different from what at least my brain collected over years of movies uh, and whatever else uh, that talked about spacemen going to the moon. Yeah. So you have these uh, iconic image of the astronauts in these cockpits that are tiny and covered uh, everywhere by buttons and levels and such. And uh, now the technology has evolved so much from the 60s uh, to today. And so all you need is really one large screen that looks like a large iPad. And that's pretty much all they have. Wow. Uh, and the space, uh, like technology in SpaceX is very functional. And uh, also they are very conscious of the environment and they recycle a lot. So pretty much one of the things that SpaceX does, they go after the launches uh, where the bigger pieces of the rockets detach and they fall uh, on Earth, whether it's in an ocean, in a lake, in a desert. They go and pick those pieces up so they can refurbish and reuse the materials for the next one. So hmm. there is, um, and the spaces inside is very much functional to what the purpose is, is not to be cool uh, or to be filmed in or anything like that. So we tried uh, to do that. Like uh, I used uh, uh, very basic elements uh, of design, but I wanted to emphasize the fact that today you don't have those cockpits with a million buttons, you have pilot seats and uh, a large screen. And we added like a few elements just to make it a bit more cinematic again, but that was the direction. We didn't go in the old school vision. So I don't know if everyone is going to appreciate or they think that we, we were lacking on things. That was always my fear that maybe it was going to be seen like, what is this empty little space? Uh, yeah, because that's tricky. It's like you, you want to be realistic, but at the same time, if nobody really understands what the realism is, then it almost seems like you're under-designing and you're under-propping. So how do you balance that? I mean, I think like you, I mean, I agree with you. The, the way I would envision this is the same you said you did, and I think a lot of your audience would too. They're envisioning kind of this old 1960s rocket ship. And that's, knowing that that's not what it is and having to be realistic but also give people something that they would understand. It's got to be tricky. Yeah, you know, you got to risk it sometimes. And there is, uh, again, uh, the teamwork effort uh, to discuss these things uh, beforehand and see what could have worked and what didn't. And we all agree that even the the rocket that we built, the interior, uh, we had the two different environments. Uh, we have the living quarters, which is where they polish the guns and where they get the guns. And so we had tables so where they can have their food and the bathroom and the plants. So we added a lot of texture and I kept some of the elements of our collective memory of what a rocket that goes to the moon looks like. Yeah. Uh, 
so I tried to everywhere the camera would be spinning around to have a texture in the background. But the cockpit, which is the most technological part of all, of all, I decided to go full in for minimalism and just keep it as realistic as we could. So I broke the white and the gray with just these endo bars, so which are really everywhere. Because when there is absence of gravity, the astronauts use these endos, which are spread around the space so to just move around the spacecraft. And, and then the large monitor, and we just set up the, the round, like we just landed on the round design. And so everything was up in, in circles, but that was it. So you kind of make a choice and then you hope that the audience will appreciate and uh, you just uh, go with it. <laughs> We've got a question from Twitter here. Um, let's see, where did it go? Oh, on Instagram, actually. Will Horn wants to know, was it intentional to have uh, the cast need to duck every time they walked up the stairs. There is that we created these stairs, which are X. It's an X shape, and that they don't necessarily need to duck. But like for example, John Malkovich is very tall, and uh, depending on where they were walking, they had to do a little bit of ducking. Nobody would have eaten their head. Like it was built so that it was very safe for everyone to walk. They could have jumped, but they could, the entire crew could have been standing and jumping on the stairs and nothing would have happened. But because of the design, it was very tricky, but everybody loved it so much. We just went with it. We had to adjust a few things so that everyone, even a very tall person would be able to. But like sometimes I feel like, especially if a taller man walks something, you just instinctively do that. <laughs> yes. because you know you're not going to hit your head on it. So... That's it. It was <laughs> so intentionally made so that that would, have happened, would not happen, <laughs> but it still happens. You can't control. I can tell John Malkovich, don't bend your head. Oh my God. How great would that would have been if you just interrupted every take? John, no, John? no, stop that. <laughs> I'm sure they'd love you if you did that. <laughs> oh God. That was the fun part of John Malkovich. So I was terrified at the idea of meeting him. I don't know why. I love the guy and I always had this like, when they told me it was going to be on the show, I was very excited, but also like scared that I was going to meet him. I don't know. Maybe like he was, I made him, maybe he was mean or something. I don't know why. And so the first day that he was uh, on set, I was in my office and my office was right above the soundstage. And somebody calls in and they pass me the phone call. And I was like, John Markovich wants you on set. Uh, that never happened that an actor makes me call on my phone on my office to go down on set. So the wow. first day that they're there. So I was like, is everything okay? I don't know. It just has been asking for you. You should come down, please. Like, all right. So I go down. As soon as I get to set, everyone's like, Jamakovic is looking for you. He, Jamakovic wants you. He's on set. And they were rolling. I was like, I'm going to wait. I was like, no, no, go. <laughs> there. So just wait for, the, the, for them to stop the take and go. So I went in with, he was having a scene with Steve Carell. And so I was like, are you sure that I'm just going to walk to set? Like in between takes, uh, like you don't want to disturb the actors. I've never done it. Like, yeah, you need to go. The first idea was like, yeah, yeah, go. Oh my God. Wow. So I walked on the set. I looked and was like, hello, good morning. My name is Susie Mancini. I'm the production designer. I know you were looking for me. Oh yes. Hi, good morning. He was the sweetest, the most gentle man in the world. He gave me the sweetest, uh, best compliments ever. And then 
he proceeded to ask me everything about the doors in Steve Carell office because he's making this house in New Orleans and he wanted those doors for his house. Oh my so God. I need these doors. I need to know everything about these doors. And they were in between takes and I was looking at the first city like, do I start this conversation or should I just not do that right now? So anyway, we became friendly and he's been my biggest supporter ever since. He's wow. been this guy and I adore him. And I had to send him the, I designed the doors and the door handles. And so I had to share with him the designs and the place where I had it done. And we talked about architecture and interiors a ton. And uh, it's been such a pleasure, honestly, to work with him. is awesome. So I just want to say that he's a great guy. <laughs> he can go, he can do that on the stairs. Exactly. He can do anything he wants. Well, I mean, you've got a killer cast on this show and, but there's something about John Malkovich. Like there is just some, there's like a mythology about him. It's so weird. It's like, I think there's this character of John Malkovich that lives outside of his projects that people just hear the name and it has some gravitas to it. Uh, and even to stand out among the cast that you have there. I mean, that's, it's funny to hear you say that you kind of got that nervous feeling when he had asked you to come on set. I would be terrified. I'd be horrified by it but I would love it at the same time. I was like, there's something really wrong. I offended him. He saw something he doesn't like. So I'm also the person that is negative. So I always go, my, my brain goes straight to the worst case scenario. Really? And, uh, so I was there prepped to like, he wants to fire me because he hates what I've done. I don't know. Like that was my feeling. My heart was pumping. And I was like, I love these doors. <laughs> <laughs> Dustin Scratches on Instagram wanted to know what your inspiration was. We kind of talked about that earlier in the show. Um, so I don't think we need to cover it again, but I do appreciate your question, Dust and Scratches on Instagram. Um, so we talked about you got you got the chance to go to SpaceX, uh, which must have been awesome and sounds like it was. Did you get to see any other locations um, that you were drawing ins for inspiration from? I went uh, to see like the military base in San Diego, but the limited... It was a very limited access scenario. Yeah. I couldn't really go much anywhere. So what I looked like just looked like a large office space. So I wasn't that engaged, but also I had bad luck with the timing. They were having something happening. It wasn't clear. So I just couldn't have access to pretty much anywhere. So what I saw was like an office looking space. So got it. Thank you. Yeah. So no, no guided tours through the Pentagon or anything like that. Oh, no, we really wanted to, and we couldn't. So even the Pentagon, fortunately, there is enough uh, online and in the archives uh, to get an idea of what it looks like. So we built yeah. the, the Pentagon, the, uh, the interior, the chief of staff room and the corridors around it. Um, and we like the corridor is actually like a copy and paste of what they would look like. I used as much as I could the same amount of wood paneling and the same color wood paneling and the lighting, the fixtures on the ceiling. Um, the room itself, the chief of staff from Gold Room, that's like completely created off of creativity of different from different things. Uh, but we go back to Dr. Strangelove, which is one of our main source of um, inspiration because of the round table in the mm -hmm. big room. Uh, so we use that little homage to Kubrick. I didn't want to go too much on his face or do the thing that, oh, that's exactly like that movie. But sure. we wanted to, again, 
you know, do little winks in there for that. And uh, so we used the round table, which was also very functional for camera because that's, you can separate it into pieces and camera could have access in it. So it was easier to shoot the actors from the inside of the table. And then other, the ceiling of that room is all light box, which is also Kubrick element from 2001 Space Odyssey. Yeah. And the spaceships, he has these low ceilings that are complete uh, light boxes. And so at the end, in the weird room uh, where you see God and the monolith, uh, the, the floor is a, a light box. So I kind of added that element into our space as well. And then the rest of the room is inspired by generally what the actual rooms in the Pentagon looks like with elements of the militaries everywhere and microphones from the ceilings and stuff. Uh, The type of art that would be hanging in that room in the Pentagon. But a lot of the details are from North Korea. Hmm. So that was my personal little joke in it, that the core of the American military was designed off of a North Korea uh, government building or government uh, meeting room. So, for example, the color of the carpet is this electric blue, which the uh, blue is used very often in America and government buildings, but not electric blue. That's very much North Korean. So, I added that part and the columns. I added these weird, uh, completely useless in terms of structure columns, which are also typical of the North Korea architecture. And then the paneling, that's also very North Korea. And in between the panels, you will notice, but there are there are little pentagons. I'm, look, need- I'm looking at them right now. Yeah, it's like the, the borders of the paneling converge into this little design in the middle. And that's also super North Korean. And the logo in it is designed as if it was a North Korean type of design. And the big copper map of the world the lights up, that's uh, very typical of government buildings in Korea. The world has a different orientation in which Korea is at the center, but I made our regular one, but it's uh, also inspired by that. I just uh, had fun with it. Greg, let me say, like once I mentioned North Korea, I had these books about it, uh, about, I, I am a big lover of North Korea architecture. It's crazy. They do amazing, wild things. And, um, and so I showed it to him. I was like, I have this idea. Maybe was like, yeah, go all in. I was like, okay, got it. <laughs> wow. Where where did your love of the North Korean architecture come from? I guess how did you even get expo- how did you even get exposed to it? I think it was off of Pinterest years ago. I was I was working for Funny or Die, and I designed the interior of their offices here in Hollywood. And I got I started to get into that because they use a lot of color. And a lot of patterns, and uh, but it's still very neat and kind of plain, but with this pop of unexpected designs that uh, really grabbed my attention. So I started to collect images uh, off of the internet, uh, just of whatever I could find on the topic, and then I found a couple of books because there isn't much, obviously. Yeah. But what I could find, I bought. So I had these books laying around. And when I do, and when I work, I bring all of my books with me in my office and I create my little personally, personal library for inspo at all time. And that was just there. And I started going through it when I was designing this. And I was like, I think this will look dope in there. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, the big guys liked it. And so I went for it. <laughs> 
So let's talk about collaboration during post-production. It's not that easy. You know, it's a little bit tricky. And for those of you guys that are using Premiere and Final Cut Pro, I have a solution for you. It's called PostLab. Now, yes, we've been talking about PostLab for a while now, uh, but if you haven't tried it out, now is the perfect time because with this link that I'm about to give you, you get three months free. Go to gocreativeshow.com forward slash PostLab and get three free months. Now, it's great for a bunch of reasons, but I'm going to highlight three. First, PostLabs gives you incredible access. So besides always saving all of your documents locally, PostLab syncs all the changes with the entire team, wherever they are. So you don't have to be zipping up files anymore and documents and sending them back and forth. That time is over. They also make sure that there's no broken files. Now, any of you guys that are doing editing and you're trying to collaborate with people, you know the two people working on the same file is an accident waiting to happen. Now, what happens with PostLab is once anybody opens up that library, it locks it from everybody else. So there's no chance in having a conflict between two editors on the same file. And it shows you who's doing what, which is also really important. And then lastly, Time Machine 2.0. This is like the next evolution of Time Machine because you can browse the history of each library. You can jump back and forth between versions and find that exact edit that you're looking for within minutes. And it opens exactly how you left it down to the blinking playhead. So now if any of these things sound interesting to you, I strongly suggest you go and you get PostLab. You can check it out for yourself at gocreativeshow.com forward slash PostLab and you get three free months. This is going to change the way that you edit for the better. And it's for Final Cut Pro 10 and Premiere. Check it out for yourself at gocreativeshow.com forward slash PostLab. In our last few minutes, I want to talk about how you collaborate with the departments because all of this is great. I mean, you can go wild. You can make the, the most interesting set possible. You can, you know, construct anything to your heart's desire, but it has to be able to collaborate with camera department and your grip and electric, wardrobe, all of those things. So can you talk to me a little bit about how you collaborate with each of, with each of these departments to ultimately get to the result that we see on screen? Yes, this is a great part of the job. Thank you for asking because I say it every time I can. Uh, this is a teamwork, a big team, tons of people, everyone with an opinion, everyone with their needs and their budgets. So that's uh, probably one of the most demanding part of the job for everyone, not just the production designer, is to make sure that the work you do works well for everyone else. Hmm. And it allows everyone else to do their job as best as they can. And uh, since the first steps, uh, it's, you know, I bring my creativity on the table, but uh, it's always uh, hand in hand uh, with the budget, with the production being on board. Like I can't, I don't even want to start talking creative too much with a showrunner or uh, a director if I haven't had the okay first from the producer. Because once you put an idea in someone's head and they like it, and then you cannot achieve it because it would cost too much, then yep. you are in trouble. Yep. So since the first steps, I hold back my creativity and I try to make it possible even before I start talking about it. Because then again, it becomes even more complicated. And then 
once uh, you agree on a look, then first is the DP. Like, do you like this look? Like, if it fits the story, will it work for your camera? And then there is a lot of feedback there. Like, yes, but maybe like for me, it would be great if we have, I'm thinking of this camera movement. So maybe I need this much space here. So you design all together to create the best environment. And then lighting's come in. It was like, if we want, like in this case, lighting is such a major element of design. So every time I was designing a skylight, I was working with the gaffer and the DP to make sure that they had enough space in the soundstage to add the lighting they needed so that we could use these skylights and have the effect we wanted. But I couldn't just design it because if I designed something and then they didn't have the space they needed to make it happen, then I just spent a ton of money that doesn't make any sense because nobody's going to see it or they're not going to function well. Mm. So, and the costumes, we, our offices, uh, Kathleen and mine office were back to back. So there was a lot of communication in terms of graphics. Every time that we had the new costume, we created graphics. And so there was this constant, very organic collaboration. And also once I established the world that they knew what colors and materials I was using. And so they started doing their job in terms of what type of color for the uniform, uh, the uniforms uh, so that you're going to pop against the concrete and it's going to work well. So again, it's always uh, hand in hand uh, with every department. Uh, and uh, I have to always thank and talk uh, for a minute at least uh, about my incredible team because it's not just me with the other department, it's me and my department, which is composed by a lot of uh, other departments itself and a lot of great people that work restlessly to make my design happen. And I will always be forever grateful to every single one of them from my office team to my construction team. Everyone worked so hard. And uh, a shout out always to my set decorator, Rachel Ferrara, because she's a genius and she's great. And she's extremely fun and pleasant to work with. And she has the best team. Her set dressers are incredible. Everyone really was great but you know you always have maybe your favorite and she's also a friend and uh, it's uh, it's a big collaboration with the set decoration part as well because you design the box but then you have to fill the box yeah so you work a lot together and to have someone that just gets it and knows what what you need and help you achieve the look you had in your head it's 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 really important so again thank to everyone in the art department and special one to my set decorator. I want to talk just for a moment about your relationship with Gary Warshaw, your art director, because I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand the difference between what a production designer is responsible for and what an art director is responsible for. And I'd love to talk about the distinction between the two and how you work together. So the art director is fundamental. It's another one of those big, big roles in my department. And uh, so uh, I, let's say that if I get these ideas and then uh, I work with my set designers uh, to create uh, all the drawings for the construction team, the art director is the link in between the office work of designing the sets and the construction team on the soundstage. And it coordinates the work. So it makes sure that every step is done in time, in budget. So it takes care most of all of the schedule and the money. 
So we make sure that every money that is every dime that is spent on the set is spent correctly, and that uh, is going to be delivered in the time frame that we are decided about, mm. and that we use the materials that uh, I selected, and that uh, everyone is doing their job. So he directs the art department. So I oversee the entire department, but then he helps making sure that every single person involved in the process is doing what they're supposed to be doing. So when someone is dragging their feet, he's the one that goes there and cracks the whip. <laughs> it's nice to have a bulldog like that on your side. Well, you know, Greg is a, Gary is a very sweet man. Uh, you don't need to be a bulldog, but uh, <laughs> you need to, to know who does what and when it's to be done. And so you're always there for every meeting. You are, it, you know, it's a very hands-on and very stressful type of work for sure. And also I'm not uh, on set uh, a lot because also, especially on a TV show, you are creating while you are shooting. So we get uh, scripts as we go. So mm. you find out about stuff happening. So you go on location scouts for days at a time and you're building and creating while they're shooting something else. And so it's this constant work wheel that never stops until the end. And so you need like somebody that, that takes care of uh, the stuff when you're gone and make sure that everybody's working well. well. How many days was this uh, series? Uh, it was eight months. Mm, wow. I don't know exactly the amount of days. So that's a lot. Of, that's, that's, a, that's a fairly long time. Yeah, in between the prep and construction time, shooting time and rap, that's that's where we landed. We had like the Christmas break in between. We had yeah. like three weeks off. And I, just last thing, I want to talk to you a little bit about just the state of Los Angeles right now and the film industry. I mean, we're just now starting to come back from COVID-19. Um, states are starting to open up a little bit, but well, starting to come back. I think we're at the very beginning of a very long road, but... You know, states are starting to open up a little bit. Production, not so much, but getting there in Boston, I think it's June 29th, if everything goes well. Um, what's it like over there? How are people feeling? What What are you hearing? I mean, I speak for everyone. I know what I get as information, which are from my agency or my coworkers, people that we have plans on shooting things with that we were going to be doing already and everything has been delayed. So there is a lot of catching up with the current events and everyone has their own rumors. So it's a lot yeah. that I heard. Somebody said, he told me. So I don't feel like saying anything uh, for real, but I know that certain shows are going to be back on in July, at least for prep uh, and aiming to start shooting in, in August. Okay. And I think that um, at the moment, from what I understand is a lot of the, the big, um, production companies or the studios so they just need to figure out uh, a lot of liability issues and uh, insurance issues and uh, you know how to make sure that all the crew and cast is safe even if there is a second wave uh, what does it mean to shut down production again so there are a lot of paperwork issues uh, to be handled but i'm sure that everyone in town is on the start line ready to go back to work yeah, that's what it's like here in Boston. Everyone is very, very much wanting to get back. So I think there's going to be a lot of pent up excitement to uh, get on set again. Yes, for sure. Well, let's hope let's hope it's 
Sooner rather than later. Um, Susie, thank you so much for being on Go Creative Show. The show is so funny. Space Force on Netflix. You have to watch it if you haven't seen it already, if for nothing else. But the production design, the set design, and just the beauty of this amazing set. Uh, both interior and exterior. It just looks really, really great. And you guys and your whole team did a fantastic job. So thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much for having me. And I hope you guys like the show. I want to thank Susie Mancini for coming on the Go Creative Show and sharing her experiences. Of course, check her out on IMDb. We'll have links to everything in the show notes. And of course, watch Space Force on Netflix. It's a really funny show. And now that you know how the whole thing was made, it's going to be even more fun to watch. I also want to thank Matt Russell for mixing and mastering and making the show sound so good. You can find him at gainstructure.com and on Twitter at gainstructure. And our producer, Connor Crosby. You can find him at ignitionvisuals, ignitionvisuals.com. And all things Go Creative Show are right there at gocreativeshow.com. The show notes from this episode and all the past episodes, links to our social media, uh, links to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. It's all there. So check it out for yourself. And please support our sponsors, MZ, Education for Creatives, and Post Lab, Stress-Free Collaboration for Final Cut Pro and Premiere. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we will see you next week on another episode of The Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. Filmmakers.